one of the things about entrepreneurship, there is no reward without the risk. Every great entrepreneur had help. And where is that help going to come from? It's going to come from that social network. You don't have to be smarter than everybody else to make money doing asset allocation and save. I think there's a danger when you're in business to find arrogance, and especially if you're doing really well. At the end of the day, I ain't nothing special. I'm just a guy. What has value? Well, what has value is whatever people say has value. I'm going to get better and better and better at what I do as I get older. So the best me is going to be the me right before I die. Hey guys, welcome back to the Marketplace Podcast. I'm your host, Priest Willis, and on today's episode number 160, I'm joined with Corey Pagese. As a youth, Corey was criminal. As an adult, he became a high-ranking police officer. Corey, as a native of Queens, retired from NYPD as a deputy inspector in 2013 after 21 years of service. We talked with Corey about his life in his book, Once a Cop, in which he opens up about why he joined the New York Police Department after years as a drug dealer. Corey speaks honestly about the poor choices he made while the coming of age in New York City during the height of the crack epidemic. He's equally candid about why he turned his life around and takes you inside the NYPD, where he becomes a decorated police officer despite bureaucratic pitfalls and discriminatory practices written with the voice of panage of someone who knows the streets once a cop is credible an informative look at the forces that led some into a life of crime and what it means to make good on a second chance without further ado here is my man Corey Pagese hey guys welcome back to the marketplace podcast so as we open up with Corey I began to ask him why did he think it was important to write his book? And he shares that with us. Well, it was important for me because of my lifestyle, the way I grew up. Um, you know, the, the book is written in three parts, hustler, cop, in the streets. And so, you know, the themes of the book are transformation, self-actualization. And I just wanted people to realize that you could be in the doldrums and pull yourself by the bootstraps out and make yourself something like I did. Hmm. So it was very important. Um, definitely was about legacy. When I first wanted to write the book, it was about the Pagese legacy, about generations from now, um, grandkids, great-grands, finding about my story and saying, hey, man, grandpa did this. I could do that, too. And then it just morphed. It morphed into me wanting to just touch the entire world with my story, which is what I'm actually doing now. Corey releases his book. Once a Cop, The Street, The Law, Two Worlds, One Man. And he did one of his first interviews back in 2014 on the Combat Jack Show. God rest his soul. One of my favorite podcasters. And he received a backlash from it. I began to ask him the question, did you expect that kind of backlash? No, we wasn't expecting that kind of backlash. But we was, we was definitely expecting to raise the temperature. It was pre-planned. 
uh, we were shopping for a book deal. When I say we, me and my manager slash attorney, God bless mm. Ed Woods, we were shopping for a deal, and we couldn't get it. And so we knew that Combat Jack, Combat Jack was a law partner with my my um, lawyer, Ed Woods. And so we knew he had the number one hip-hop po- podcast in the, in the world. So if we go on, on that podcast, we were raising my eyes. I did not know we was going to end up on the front page of a New York City newspaper and run for five days straight. Stories about right. that I didn't know. Backside to that whole story is what people didn't realize is well, everybody was reading my story and going crazy and saying, this guy's a nut. The top 10 publishers in the world was offering me book deals after reading my story. We put it to 100. We just, we wasn't playing. We turned it to 100. <laughs> I mean, especially after it hit the news, after it hit the news. So at that point, it just pissed me off. Mm. So now it was like, I definitely got to tell my story. They're mm. going to vilify me. Um, you you got to understand, it's a billion-dollar company. Rupert, Rupert Murdoch owns that newspaper, so I can't fight a billion-dollar company. So I was hell-bent on now really getting my story out because that's the only way I can fight back. You know, right. I can't fight the press. They do press conferences every day. I got to ask them to do one for me, so... The only way I was going to be able to answer the critics is to get my book out. And lo and behold, two years later, after my book dropped, it was crickets. Nobody had nothing to say. Wow. I finally told the whole story. And um, actually, I was revving in the news. The, uh, there was a news, the competing newspaper for the one that put me on the front page paid me to get the exclusive rights to the story and did a two-page spread on me the day my book dropped. And then so I ended up being on the Daily Show with Trevor Noah. And I saw that. With Reverend Al Sharpton and, you know, so on and so forth. We were in the media bliss. And nobody had anything negative to say. Everybody was saying this is the greatest story never told. Corey was born in 1968 in Queens, New York. And when his mother passed, he made a commitment to himself that he would be a better man. And that resonated with me because when my mother passed, I also made a commitment whether that's spiritually, however someone wants to see it, that I would, too, be a better man. I would be a better father, a better husband. This is over 20-plus years ago. But every day I strive to be better. And so his story meant so much to me because I've seen that. And in particular, he has a chapter where we talk about Lucy. And in that chapter, he shares the rough home life that he had in Queens. And I wanted him to share more about that. It was one of the top, uh, you know, one of the most violent drug gangs, gangs in the history of the country was running in Southeast Queens, the Supreme Team, which right. I was eventually started working for. Corey starts hustling at the ages of 13 to 18 years old. Early on, he actually aligned with the notorious Supreme Team. If you're not familiar with that group, then maybe you heard of Kenneth Supreme McGriff, who was one of the people that has actually went up against 50 Cent. 50 Cent has actually accused him of running down or his gang of running him down and shooting with him. Kenneth McGriff eventually joins Ja Rule, Irv Gotti, and some of the others under the record label Murder, Inc., but Corey shares more about how he got into hustling specifically and how the Dream Team took him under and how he started to move early on. 
I mean, it was invaluable because, you know, I came from a broken home. My father left when I was in the third grade. We're not going to give up all the books. But mm-hmm. um, so, you know, when I was in that type of situation, I was looking for a male figure, you know. And let me just tell you this. You got to understand when, uh, when I was young, when you look at the history of rap and drugs, when I was young, all the drug dealers wanted to be rappers. Right. And they had right. a pendulum swing 30 years today. <laughs> now all the, all the rap, all the, all the drug dealers. Rappers wanted to be drug dealers. I'm sorry. And the rappers was LL Cool J. They wasn't drug dealers. See, you know, I grew up with those guys. They wasn't making money. It was the Supreme Team. You know, it was making like twenty fifty thousand dollars a week. Run DMC to a short. probably got four or five thousand dollars. Yeah, so it was a thing to do. They wasn't really making no money. They wasn't making money. The money was being made by the streets. And so, you know, for me to go over there, you got to understand, if I grew up with uh, Wall Street, you know, I grew up with gangsters, expensive drug dealers. So those were the people that was around. Mm -hmm. You know, it was just people driving the Mercedes, you know, the BMWs, so on and so forth. Fancy cars, fancy jewelry. And so when you live in that environment, I suppose you know when you're doing it every day, you're eventually going to get sucked into it. Corey's book is pretty amazing in the fact that he actually has a small portion of the book that shows pictures of that period when he was in the streets hustling uh, with jewelry and the cars of that time. And even being around members of the Supreme Team and his friends and places that he were in at that period. But things slowly begin to change. Corey graduates in 1987, but before that, his life changes. In December 1986, his oldest son was born. June 14, 1987, his daughter was born. And then his mother passes away July 30th, 1987. He goes into the military October 18th, 1987. So this string of events with kids being born starts the catalyst of his change, of his life transformation. Oh, yeah. December 12, 86 was definitely the start of everything, pretty much. When I held Corey Jr. in my arms, it was like, wow, now what am I going to do? I can't, I can't run out on him. Mm. I need to be a positive role model. And I knew, you know, just is death, death or jail. I already knew that because bodies were dropping all around. But you got to understand, last year in New York City, they had less than 300 homicides. When I was out there in the street, they had upwards of 21, 2,200 homicides. Mm. So bodies was dropping. The numbers don't lie. You can lie about a lot of stuff. You can't hide bodies. And so it was, a very, it was a very dangerous time. But even during all that danger, <laughs> the crazy thing in me and my crew, we still talk, though. We had so much fun. We didn't even realize how dangerous it was. But we definitely saw people disappearing. You know, it was a lot of waiting for them to go through. In that period when bodies were dropping in New York, there's a part in the book where Corey begins to talk about how he almost killed someone himself. And fortunately, he didn't. But it was just that easy for him to slide into the dangerous times that him and his friends didn't recognize were as dangerous as we see they were today. I always believe that my mother's been my guardian angel. You know, I don't reminisce too much about what I did um, because, you know, this is what it is. You know, I'm a definite believer in a higher power. 
And, you know, the G.O.D.'s been covering me all these years. Why stop now? I mean, if he's covered me through all of those five turbulent years in the streets, this rest is easy for me. Corey eventually leaves the Army in 1992 and six months later joins the New York Police Academy. End up doing 21 years and rose all the way to a top executive level within the police department. And we wanted to know, how did he move up? I was commander of some of the most violent precincts in the city of New York. And you understand, so I'm I'm a commander in the same type of environments that I, I grew up in. So it was easy for me to navigate through the police world. It was very easy. I was able to bridge the gap between community and police. I did that in my sleep because I knew the lingo. I knew, the, you know, the smell of the streets. I knew the walk, the talk. I knew all the tendencies. I knew what crime was. You know, I used to just, like, mess with cops all the time. Like, I would take cops out and say, okay, let's just drive to that corner real fast and just stop. <laughs> and now, whoever run, I promise you they don't have a gun on them. The guy that stands there, that's the gun guy. When Ooh. everybody else is running after the other people, the gun guy is going to stay there because he don't want the heat on It was just little tricks I used to do because I knew that from being in the streets. I want to thank today's sponsor, Bloom. Do you guys have a 401k of some kind? You're always wondering if you have the right investments, if you're picking the right thing and you're just not fully sure. Well, Bloom with three O's, B-L-O-O-O-M, does free analysis of your current employee-sponsored retirement plan. You get to understand your investments at a glance and uncover unnecessary hidden fees. Then you put them to work. You put Bloom to work with your account for $10 a month. And they'll essentially fix your 401k by optimizing your fund choices and minimizing those hidden fees. And then at that point, you just sit back and let them do what they're going to do. Now, I found out about Bloom because of David Stein. I was listening to the podcast Money for the Rest of Us, and he mentioned Bloom. And I just wanted to check to see if I was picking the right investments. And I wasn't that far off. There was a few tweaks. But the concept itself of Bloom is amazing. Go in today's podcast notes and check it out for yourself. Bloom, B-L-O-O-M, for your 401k analysis. Let's get back to the show. I was very reverent as um, a police officer and like the community that I grew up in, from the Miss Smith to Miss Jones to the, car, the gangsters, the peace guards, uh, the hardest criminals you could imagine, Supreme himself. Um, you know, they all just to be like, yo, you made it, man. Yo, we proud of you. Not that they didn't ask me to get them some, <laughs> get them some bullets because fire off goes to the line. But, uh, it knew I wasn't going to do nothing crazy like that. Yeah. But, um, hey, they really respected me. I had major respect. I mean, you know, one of the things I regret is, you know, I kept all those journals. I kept a lot of stuff. Like my main man, June, I remember being in the Army. June, he ended up going down to Baltimore and got locked up for selling some drugs. And he, he would write me letters while I was in the military. And tell me, mm. Yo, man, yo, we so proud. Yo, I'm so proud of you, man. Yo, you hold up the torch for the whole team. Don't mess it up. Mm. Wish I was on that side with you. You know, I mean, I was, you know, a split second. 
trigger pull away, whatever you want to say, from doing something crazy that could have just changed the whole trajectory of my life. And that's what happened with some of my friends. And so they all looked up to me. It was like, yo, you can't win the torch. You never know jealousy or envy. At least wow. I didn't. For any of us that watch any kind of mobster or gangster movies, we always realize that the people that tend to cross you the quickest and the most happen to be your friends. The streets are never loyal to you. There's no retirement package in the streets. There's no commitment level from anybody or the streets or a life of crime. But Corey was able to navigate his time in crime and all the way to being a police officer, to finding friends in his corner. We was friends before we was we was a team. Mm-hmm. We was friends before all of that. Like we slept at each other's house, ate each other. You know, mothers cooked for one another. Like we was doing some real friend stuff, played right. ball, you know, all kind of stuff. And so when the money started coming over hand over fist, yeah, you know, eventually it started getting a little crazy. We all had to strap up, but it really it, we wasn't strapping up for one. You know, against one another, it was against outsiders. You always got that pressure. I mean, that's you. That's part of being in the streets. You always you worrying about your mother setting you up, your girlfriend setting you up, your main man. You worrying about the police. You worrying about the crackhead coming to you going to set you up. So all of those, all of those are there. Right. You you harden. You get hardened real quick in the streets. You better right. learn that quick. Well, I see all these other guys. They get locked up and do all this crazy stuff because they. They really wasn't, like, you got to eat, sleep, and drink the streets. That's what I did. That's what we did. Yeah. So, you know, like being a cop, I played the wall all the time. Just like, I learned how to play the wall from being in the streets. Got to look left, right, and in front of me. You can't ever walk behind me. Every time I see a cop on the street corner and he's standing by the sidewalk, I laugh. I say, he has no idea. And I didn't learn, you know, all of that's from being a cop. You know, being in the streets. Like not, you know, I remember being in a police academy and they used to say, you when you talk to somebody, you got to be in an interview position, strong side to the rear so they don't grab your gun. So that's like your left, your left side to the back, righty, the right side to the back. I was right. doing that in the street. <laughs> oh, right. I didn't know no karate or no jujitsu. I was 125 <laughs> pounds. You can't grab me. Right. I always got to be at the rear. So I laughed like, you know, I would do this training and stuff, but I was like so far ahead of what they was trying to it was like, man, I've been doing that my whole life. Survivals, but that's what I had to learn that. What tends to be missing today with policing in the community is that there's no real connection. And Corey's story shows that him growing up in the streets made a difference for him to be able to talk and work with the people of the communities that he came from. This was something that when I was growing up as a kid was very vital. They used to hand out baseball cards in Milwaukee, Wisconsin to the kids in the street and just drive their patrol cars by, which created a different connection between the police, the kids, and the others of the community. So I asked Corey, how was his connection with the people because of his relationship early on with those same communities? You know, there's a piece that I wrote in my book about my partner. I had this white partner, Irish guy, I can remember him. You know, at times he'd be like, yo, let's stop these guys on the corner. I'd be like, well, what's up? What you see? He said, look, look, look how they dress. And I would say, did you see me come to work today? I had the same thing on. My pants sagged a little. I had a hoodie and we wear jeans. That's 
that's a description of a male black man in any city neighborhood. We just, we're going to just throw everybody against the wall like that. Turn this car around. What you talking about? But he didn't understand it. It's same. You go in a white neighborhood, punk rock neighborhood, heavy metal. They went with the jeans with the with the chain hanging out their right side. That's yes. what they did. But if you don't feel the streets, if you don't know it, then you're not going to be able to navigate. You know, the rapper Nas and my beat group, I remember they came up with the lingo saying Sun this, Sun that. So it would be like, you know, a 45-year-old white guy stopping a couple of young guys on the street and the guys are like, yo, son, leave me alone. He might get offended. So I'm not your son. I'm old enough to be your daddy. And I'm saying, oh, that's that's not a call. You do your son. That's the way they greet each other. <laughs> right. So if you don't know the code of the streets, you not. That's where I was so comfortable. You know, all those guys, I would be um, Nas, Tragedy, Mark. Those guys maybe be like, "Yo, you a cop? You 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 really a cop?" They just couldn't understand that I was so embedded in what they was doing. It was just so easy for me. But I know my record speaks for itself. Crime was down every year in every community that I worked. But more importantly, I bridged that gap between the community and the police. That was even more important than bringing crime down because the community was so at ease. You know, I have this little saying. I was telling people, like, keep your mind at ease, vote the keys. That's what I used to say, like, walking around. Um, because I would keep the kids, you know, for instance, if I could get another in the book. Like, I would, when I was commanding all the projects in Brooklyn, in Northern Brooklyn, the most violent projects in probably the country, I would go do what they have a family day for every project once a year in the summer. And it'd be barbecue, and I'd go there with the cops and white cops. And um uh, go to a barbecue, and I said, yo, man, yo, throw me a turkey. They just say, yo, Commander, what's going on? I said, yo, man, put a turkey burger in and make me some cheese and throw me a little bit of that macaroni on the side. And I asked the cops, he wants something to get it. No, 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 and I'd be looking at it, I'd be laughing. I'd be like, yo, you see all these people over here dying from eating that food? Look at them, they're dropping like flies. But it wasn't even about the food. Right. Sometimes I'd tell them, yo, wrap it up. I'd take it to the police and throw it away. I ain't going to food. Right. But it was about showing them, I'm no better than you. I eat what you eat. And sometimes yeah. I sat there and I ate the burger. Right. But it wasn't right, right. even about that. I was hungry. It was just letting them know, come I'm on. with you. Y'all can relax. We're not here to overrun this place. Right. And I had an open-door policy. Like, my phone number, you know, I ain't paid a bill. It was a police department phone. I gave it to everybody I could find. Here, call me, anything. Call me. My cops don't run. Call me. So I was getting calls off the 25 hours a day that phone wouldn't stop ringing. And it was access that they never had. That's they couldn't lose point. it. That's a Even good like point. today, like today, you know, social media is big, right? So you say I was coming. I retired in 2000. So uh, 13, and I was out for two years. So you figured nine years, 10 years, let's say 10 years ago, I created an email master list for the community mm. every month. This is mm. 10 years ago. I, you know, email was out. So I had my community affairs office. Every meeting we go to get people emails. And then I had like a picky's corner newsletter that I would put out. And I would tell them for the last 30 days how many shooters we had, how many robberies we had. I would get cop of the month for somebody that did something good, a, a civilian of the month. So this was this was unprecedented. People wasn't doing that. They probably still ain't doing that right now. Like, they, they yeah. didn't have Twitter accounts back then. Police departments all got Twitter accounts. Man, I was doing that way back when Twitter first started. And again, like, I would tell people that some people in this community need to be in jail. 
Did y'all know who the hell they are? <laughs> y'all know, you know who needs to be in jail. And those are people we're looking to target. It's <laughs> simple. Right. I'm trying to target Joe that just got off the bus from college and you're throwing against the wife. Why are you, why you messing with this guy? We already right. know. I mean, crime is not rocket science right now. Computers are everywhere. Computer statistics. So we know where the gangsters are. I would tell the cops. Oh, so one of my cops was stopped like a college kid or whatever. I said, oh, okay, that's what you want to do. And I signed up for the next week to the most final place in the prison. Now I want you to stop some people. Mm. You go, go in that corner over there and stop some people. You ain't going to mess with them because you know you might have to call up officer needs assistance because it's going to be a brawl. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know? So yeah. I got put. You need commanders that's outside. I was commander extraordinaire. I'm not even like tooting my own. I'm telling you, I lived, I worked in the biggest police department in the country, the third biggest army in the world. And I was an executive, so I know what they do. I know what, what they're capable of doing. I was doing, they was, it was just crazy. What I was, I was coming up with stuff they never seen before. Policing isn't easy. And I talked to Corey about me watching Brooklyn 75 Precinct on Netflix and we hear about, you know, all the improprieties and corruption that's being done in police stations across the U.S., across the country, quite frankly. And to be fair, there's over 40,000 plus cops in New York, for example, and there's thousands and thousands of others around the country, how many ever that is. And in so many years, you're going to hear about scandals because the minute you put the first human somewhere, it becomes an imperfect situation, whether that's church or regardless what it is. But Corey and I begin to discuss the different perspectives and the understanding of how do we handle corruption and is the blue wall real for policing and how do we address some of those concerns? I was faced with... um. You know, I give him another piece of the book. I remember me and my partner stopping a guy um, for whatever it was on the highway or on the street. We stopped him and went up to his car and, like, license, registration, insurance. He had a duffel bag in the back. So he was in the back. He's like, I don't know. That's yours. Like, what are you talking about? Yo, open the bag. Yeah, I open the bag. It's, I believe it's like $30,000 cash in the back. Hmm. So my partner looks at me, I look, my partner looks at me like, yo, let's go. We hit the jackpot. Let's get this. <laughs> so I looked at him and I got like about three years on the job and coming from the lifestyle I came from, you know, I was doing the math. You know, I used to be in the streets. I was doing the math real quick, $28,000 that I'm making. Um, in like 20 years, I probably make like 700000 to 30000 We got to bust that down twice, 15000 And this might be a setup. Yeah. Mm. Mm. It ain't worth it. Because I just, I thought from the day that I came in, because I knew I was cops for sure, man, different than everybody else, that they was after me in terms of affairs. So they they couldn't, there wasn't enough money they could put plant for me to take. So I knew right there I was uncorruptible. Yeah. And there's That's another story in the book there. They'll find like one of my first arrests that I talk about. So from very early on, I put my foot down and, and let them know, look, I'm just here to do my job and I'm not. I'm not going to sit here and play your black-white jokes. I'm not, I'm not doing none of that. Like, let me just come do what I got to do, and I'm out of here. And by the way, I'm going to the top because I, I came from the military. So you got to understand I had three jobs in my life. 
the Supreme mm-hmm. team was a job because Supreme ran it like a Fortune 500 company. We worked shifts. We worked midnights, day tours, and 4 to 12. And we got paid on Fridays. I promise. This was i never seen anything like that in my life. That was my first job. I had to work from 4 to midnight every day, turn in my money at the end of the shift, and get paid on Fridays. The kicker is, you know who worked those same hours? The police uh, department. Ah, uh, So it. it was easy to have, um, corrupt the police. So, like, we was giving, like, you know, cops $15,000 a week. But it's easy when you got the same cop every day, every day, all day, who's making $20,000 at that time, $25,000 for locking up people that's making 250000 So for him to make an extra $15,000, you know, maybe seven thousand five hundred after splitting up his partner. Hey, do you think they was going to turn the eye? So Supreme and them, they were super smart. You know, they don't really get the credit. I mean, obviously, you know, they're in jail doing life for murders and stuff. But when you get past the murders and stuff, you think about this. These guys was running this like a corporation. Really? So I came into the police department already knowing where the power structure was. Mm. So I knew I didn't want to, I came out of the military, I knew the general was running stuff. And I came from the Supreme Team. I knew Supreme was the boss. So I came in with the mindset, I'm going to the top, because I knew where mm. the power was at. You can see why Corey was so well-respected on the force and in the streets. He knew how to carry himself. He knew who he was, and he knew who he wasn't. Given that temptation, he never allowed himself to be pulled back on either side or be pulled back in too much, where he didn't recognize what his position was. Corey and I began to talk more about his career, him being on the force for 21 years and two months and spending time raising all the way up to be a captain. So he was one of 13 executives in the whole police department of 40,000. That means he could tell 39,187 other people what to do based on his ranking within the police force. Eventually, Corey begins to retire, and he shares his story with us on why. I had a medical disability. I ended up having uh, getting injured while working, trying to affect an arrest of a prisoner, and ended up popping a disc in my back. Mm-hmm. I had emergency surgery. I had two surgeries. I was unable to be a full-duty cop again, so I had mm-hmm. a medical disability to retire. When I was in the hospital after the surgery, after a couple of days, the doctor came into my um, room to check on me. I think I'm going to be able to be a cop again. And uh, he was like, maybe you should find a new profession. He was like, I think you need to find a new profession. So I was like, all right. So I called my wife. I said, bring my laptop to the precinct. I mean, to the hospital, true story. Right then I started writing my stories in the hospital. I started writing the hospital, writing my stories. Well, you got to understand, I'm a hustler. So I'm looking for a new hustle. You know, I hustled in the street. I hustled the military. I hustled the police department. And I was like, yo, I got to hustle these books. I'm going to sell some crack. It was like I was selling crack all over again, <laughs> hustling books. <laughs> it's a hustle. And so now, you know, I'm a motivational speaker now, you know, expert witness. So I'm hustling that now. So the beat don't stop. I'm, I'm hustling Hollywood with a movie and TV deal. So everything is the hustle. And just sit back and, and collect a check like I'm on Section 8. In the Mafia, there's a saying called Elmerta, 
which is known as that we don't speak about the mob. The mob doesn't exist to the public. And similarly, in that respect, so does the police. The police have a blue wall, as they call it, where police aren't meant to tell on each other, which is why there's an internal affairs to investigate their own police officers in some case. In this part, Corey begins to explain the blue wall. The blue wall of silence is basically, you know, I'm your brother's keeper. You know, whatever you do, I'm going to do whatever you say, I'm going to say. Believe it or not, and I tell people all the time, uh, the police department is really not, it's really not a big blue wall as people would think. Like back in the days when there was serious corruption and stuff, it was like that. But my experience in a police department, you have small segments, like small pockets. Like you said, there's a little corruption here, there. So it'd be yeah. a team of people that's corrupt, like maybe six or seven people. But for the most part, it really wasn't a blue wall. Like cops were snitching on cops every day all day. <laughs> so I right. never, I never, I never really experienced the um, the blue wall. Okay, I, I, and that's just the honest truth. No, no. People was constantly snitching on people all the time. And I definitely used So I would address roll calls, and I used to say, because there was the misnomer that there's a, no, you know, blue wall. So I would tell people straight up and say, hey, if something happens today where I'm working, I'm the one that's calling internal affairs. So we're going to stop trying to figure out who snitch, who the snitch is. I'm telling you right now who the snitch is. The snitch is me. So if you do something in front of me, I'm guaranteed, I'm telling. So you don't, nobody got to sit in the room and try to figure out who said it. I'm telling because it's about my family. You're not right. taking me down for your nonsense that you out here doing. That's good yeah, stuff. I did that all the time. The cops used to look at me like I was on my damn mind. <laughs> this dude is crazy. But I wanted them to think I was crazy. Because if them thinking I was going to crazy was going to save my career and save my life for eight hours and 35 minutes, which the hours they were, I was fine with them thinking I'm crazy. Since Corey came out with his story in the book, there's been back and forth with specific people within the NYPD. And he talks about his current relationship with his past employer. Yeah, well, eventually that was all a black. It was all a black white thing. It was all about black. You got okay. you got to look at years ago. You know, the young black man. They they really believe in their mind that I bamboozled them to become a cop, which mm. I didn't. I answered every question they had. Nobody asked me if I sold drugs or shot at people. So if they would have asked me, maybe I would have answered it. I got scared <laughs> and went went to the light company. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> nobody asked me. Right. So. I never lied. Um, and again, you know, with mafia cops, they killed like eight people while on duty. Then their mind, there's no reform for us. They want us to be stuck where we are. They they really expected me to be a drug dealer my entire life. They even went on national TV saying, if he was selling drugs when he was a cop, I mean, a drug dealer, what do you think he was doing when he was a cop? And what do you think he's doing now that he's retired? Stupid. I, bet I left that. That's over 30-something years ago since I committed a crime or stole something. But they can't get past that. They can't right. get past that. Right. They can't get past that we can change. Never mind the three degrees I got. Never mind me being a professor at two colleges. Never mind me being one of the highest-ranking members in the New York City. All of that, I bamboozled all of that. 
I did all of that. In their eyes, basically, I'm the black Donald Trump. Corey shares where he's at today. He's in a great space as a motivational speaker. He has this book out, and he shows that there's more layers to us, and there's stories of redemption all across the world. And his story is inspiring for those that just because your past has been one thing, it doesn't have to affect your future. Yeah, so, I, well, first of all, I want to thank you for allowing me to get my story out because I'm trying to touch as many ears as I possibly can by constantly talking about my story because I know there's kids out there the same age that I was in 84, 85, doing all the crazy dumb stuff I was doing. Mm-hmm. And there's parents that's out there that was like my mother who knew what I was doing but couldn't couldn't stop me. She mm-hmm. couldn't stop me because I was a hungry wolf. When you're a hungry wolf, ain't nobody stop you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I want to touch as many people as I can with my story. And right now, that's what I'm doing. I'm constantly going around the country. Um, I actually just got booked for Penn State October 29th. So if people in the Penn State and the Philadelphia area, I'll be on campus on Blue Lives, Black Lives, and Blue Uniforms doing a panel out there. I just came from New Orleans, Philly, and I was out of Florida. So I'm just moving around trying to tell my story. And I want everybody to go on my social media and check my website, CoreyPegues.com. I'm pretty sure you're going to put the link up on www.CoreyPegues.com. You can find out all the stuff that I'm doing, ways to contact me if you need me to come out to your community-based organization, college of higher education, high schools. Um, You need an expert witness, your son and daughter get locked up, and you need somebody to give the expert police testimony and try to help them get off the case. I'm here. I'm just here, you know, one-stop shopping. I'm I'm doing everything, consulting. I'm consulting with groups. I'm doing a lot, and I'm having fun. I'm having fun, and I'm very excited about the documentary, feature documentary coming out next year and a newly signed television deal. That's amazing. That's dope. Super dope. So the book, Once Cop, The Street, The Law, Two Worlds, One Man, Corey, man, I can't thank you enough. I, I know you and I have been trying to get in touch with each other. I, you know, I, again, I can't tell you enough how a lot of this resonated with me. Obviously, I wasn't a cop. I wasn't hard in the streets like that either. But, you know, I, there's parts that I pull from it that I totally get about wanting to change your life. And, you know, sometimes balancing in between two worlds and other stuff like that. You got a super dope story, man. And I can't wait to share it, have people listen to it. Hopefully they'll connect with you. I'm going to share with the Raleigh-Durham Police Department out this way. And um, I think it's dope, man. Thank you for for talking with me today. Appreciate it. That was Corey Pegues. And again, the book was Once a Cop, The Street, The Law, Two Worlds, One Man. I can't thank Corey enough for being on the show. I've never been a cop. I've never been in the streets. But his message resonates with me because... There's so much overlapping in terms of how a man transforms himself. And in this case, on a very large stage, going from one corner of the world to the next. The same might be for you. You may not hear anything that resonates from you from hustling and drug dealing and then becoming a cop. But you certainly can understand that we come from somewhere and it's what creates the layers in us. And hopefully this was inspiring enough for you to share Go on iTunes, go 
go on Stitcher Radio, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you can download a podcast. We're there. Leave a comment. Let me know what you think. Email me directly at priest at insidethemarketplace.com. Let me know what you thought about Corey and his message in the book particularly. I'd love to share it with him. And I look forward to having Corey back on. I guarantee you there's going to be a movie. There's going to be more in terms of a documentary around this man's story. He has an incredible story. And I think he wants to change the way we police communities. How we get in touch with those sometimes that are um, that are depressed in some areas. And I don't mean that in terms of their their mental makeup, but that could be part of it. He is one man trying to change the dialogue between law enforcement and the people that they're there to protect. So I look forward to being in touch with you next week as we have another great message from another great guest. I'll see you next Sunday. Talk soon. I'm the best ever. My style is impetuous. My defense is impregnable. And I'm just ferocious. (laughs) 